let's, let's complete Hello and welcome to this episode of the MedTalk podcast, discussing the latest news and issues in life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, editor of MedTech Innovation News, and I'm joined by Lisa Armstrong, your editor of European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer, and for once, we're actually in the same room. We are back in the office for the first time in, well, a long time. Um, I can't remember the last time we were in, but uh, this might also be the last time for a while, given the way that COVID numbers are going in this country, unfortunately. Um, And as a result, I think that's the only place to start, isn't it? Is because last week, we're recording this on the 21st of October, by the way, so last week for us, the... um, the Select Committee and the House of Commons, I think it was between the, the Science Committee and the Health Select Committee, published the uh, COVID-19 Lessons Learned to Date report. Um, uh, I think throughout the proceedings, we actually saw plenty of explosive evidence, noti- notably from uh, Dominic Cummings. But is there a couple of things that you'd like to pick out of the executive summary, first of all? Well, I think just to start off, if we have to put it in the context of where we are now with COVID. So the executive summaries just came out um, through that report. DC along the lessons learned, but we're at a place right now with COVID where these lessons sort of need to be learned, you know, sharp and ready. But yeah, yeah. So I guess if we just crack into that a little little bit first. um, I think what's interesting is just how critical it is, first of all, first off about sort of some of the uh, some of the actions that were taken by the government. I, I, I mean, from the start, a couple of highlights that I've, um, that I've taken notice of are, you know, our pandemic planning, which was at one point praised, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think back in, say, 2016. Um, that was criticised because we, we, we failed to realise um, lessons from SARS and MERS and Ebola and instead based our pandemic prepared, preparedness on a flu model, uh, which, I mean, there, there we go. We're on the back, back foot already in terms of uh, in terms of COVID. Yeah, that's point one of the report, and it seems to actually inform um, point two, which was when they discussed the uh, contained stage of the, the epidemic and then moved to delay stage. And this is the bit where they actually stopped uh, community testing because there was... They were trying to take a more targeted testing approach, which uh, in reality left us, well, left us not knowing where the virus was. Well, exactly. um, But it's not all criticism. Um, There are a couple of um, bit, you know, a couple of aspects that have been praised. I think the ventilator challenge was one that was uh, praised for the, you know, for managing to galvanize a lot of industry together to work. On, on products from scratch, really. I mean, we've covered we've covered a couple of things across our media platforms, um, notably TCP and Dyson have spoken to me, for example. Um, yeah, I think that's that's to do with the life sciences industry banding together to to to, to supply diagnostics and, and, and testing to, to the NHS and to the government. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's indicative of sort of. 
great industry we've got in the country. Which has picked up a lot on the report because they also say that the UK was one of the first countries to actually invent a test for this condition. Um, and if you actually look at point A, this is the really, really fascinating one because we've laid into Matt Hancock a lot. It's no. not, I think it's fair to say that we've we've laid into him a lot and uh, uh, I'm starting to miss him a little bit in all honesty, but uh, we'll come on to that later because um, he you know, actually announced that 100,000 tests be carried out a day, I think it was by the end of April that he targeted, April 2020. Yeah, yeah. And, he was, and even though he, he was crit- criticised in some quarters, notably one D Cummings, um, it, he was praised for galvanising the system to drive the increase in testing capacity. Even though I seem to remember at the time it was a case of, do we know how many tests are actually being um, perform the day. Oh, we just got the capacity to do it, so we're not actually doing that many tests. I mean, there were that. That's actually one strike thing that struck me in, in the summary, anyway, because I, I've not seen any allusion to transparency about figures around this thing, which I think this report could have gone into. But then again, there's so much that you can go into in terms of lessons learned. There's probably half them to cover it all, but that that would be one aspect I'd like to see more of. Yeah, I think going back to the Hancock thing. Um, I think at the time that figure seemed to be pulled out of nowhere a little bit. <laughs> but I suppose having that hard target really set about some determination to try and to, to try and hit it. You, you know, because <laughs> he he's putting his head on the line really a little bit by saying this is what we need to get to. Uh, yeah, I mean that was actually one aspect of leadership. Yeah, well <laughs> so, done. <laughs> yeah, well done, Matt. You've uh, you did your job there. Well, on that sense. Um, I mean, I just want to go back to the point. There's one point before that, mm. which was the need to um, avoid a lockdown because, you know, harm to the economy, to retail, because people wouldn't like it. it I think this is just detailing how much umming and ahhing there was from the government around that time about whether we need to actually, you know, put in place these measures to stop people spreading the virus. We'll come back to Owen and Arvin in a bit, because I think this can apply to the present day in yes, terms exactly. of the lesson learned. Um, but it's interesting how they, they seem to have this idea of that it's either health or the economy. Mm-hmm. And in reality, it's always been both. Well, because, yeah. <laughs> because let's face it, when people are well, <laughs> when, there's not a, when there's not a disease spreading around the country, we can go about things quite... Well, normally, whereas if there is, we can't. It's not. It's, yeah. it's as simple as that. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm pretty sure you were about to pick up on something else before we interrupted you. There. Well, I've got I've got a few further down the line about a bit more um, of, of a success story regarding the vaccination program, which was quite rapidly rolled out in the UK. I, I, yeah. I think it's fair to say. I think they, they did quite a, quite a good job on the vaccination side of things. So much so that it probably stopped us criticising the government a little bit more than perhaps it should have been. Yeah, the, I mean, well, just have a look at the government's approval ratings during the height of the vaccine rollout and people were getting back to normal. People yeah. had jabs in their arms and they just thought, oh, they've uh, they've done okay here. I mean, there's, there's no question about when they actually put in charge people that knew what they were doing <laughs> when, it came, when it came to vaccination and when it came to the logistics side of things. Yeah, it, it was a success in the early stages. We had pop-up clinics. Um, but it's worth bearing in mind now that there are several countries who are both caught up yeah. with the UK, and when it comes to 12 to 15-year-olds, 
are way ahead. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at mainland Europe, for example. They were vaccinating the the 12 to 15 year olds during the summer, and it feels like that's been a missed opportunity. And throughout this, I just got a sense of that not explicitly said, I'm reading between the lines here, that there were so many missed opportunities here to actually be proactive rather than reactive. And they were found wanting in that sense. Yeah, I, I think our strategy was definitely reactive in pretty much, I mean, all, all cases really, even the, even vaccines are entirely reactive because we're still waiting on people on, on them to be de- developed and, 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 and approved and stuff. And that's it, 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 as, as successful as it was for the UK. It's got nothing really to do with the government apart from clicking buy on it, <laughs> you know, but, you know, just purchasing some vaccines from, from some companies. Yeah, surely we uh, procured almost 400 million of them, which is, well, you can go and tell whether that's brilliant or, or not so brilliant um, in, in other conversations. But, you know, we, we, we got the access and we, we got the supply that we needed to, to load out quickly. But again, it's just, we broke at some deals with pharmaceutical companies who would be stupid not to uh, not, not to sell us some vaccines, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it sounds like a similar approach was taken only recently where the Sadhu Javid actually announced uh, I think new, a couple of new therapeutics, didn't he, uh, in mm-hmm. yesterday's press briefing. And he's actually admitted they've yet to be approved by the MHRA. So it's a, it, is a, it is a similar approach as, to, as taken to vaccine procurement. Yeah. I mean, it, it's worth a gamble in, in that sense if it, if it, sa- if it saves lives. But um, there was one little uh, aspect that I wanted to come to in terms of throughout I got the, the impression that there was lots of praise for work that was eventually done didn't do it quick enough. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair summary of pretty much the entire government's approach to to the COVID-19 pandemic, that nothing was done quickly enough. We can sum that up with lockdowns. Yeah, I yeah mean, lockdowns. The, the winter lockdown in particular, I think everybody was actually looking at the case rate and just thinking, um, why are we allowed to go about doing certain things right now? Yeah. And I think it was all this rigmarole that they didn't want to cancel Christmas because it looked unpopular. I mean, and, and then we cancelled Christmas. And, 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 and then we cancelled Christmas and more people died. Yeah. So, yeah, um, that is our very, very brief rundown of the report. Um, we've got a couple of points that we probably want to outline in terms of recommendations that could be acted upon now. Is there anything in particular that you picked out? It's a tough one, really. I mean... There's so much hindsight into a situation like this. I think, I mean, first of all, better communication mm-hmm. f- from the get-go about, not even better communication, but better actions from the start about what needs to be done straight away. So better guidance on mask wearing, on social, social distancing. Um, I think the rules that were announced for people who could tra- if you could travel or not, if you could go between you know different counties, etc. Mm. I think all of that could be could, you know could be a lot clearer by government, so people weren't um, confused about, about their restrictions, etc. Yeah, I mean it, that doesn't seem to be measured mentioned in the summary. No. I mean, but it's probably mentioned in the full report. The reason that we're not gone into the full report, by the way, is because we would be here forever. Yeah, but yeah. we will we will provide you the link in the bio, and you can and you can make up um, your, your own minds on that. Um, the I think there's, there's there are so many lessons to be learned when it comes to lockdowns. There are so many lessons learned when it comes to you know rolling out 
te- testing, for example. But the thing is, what, now they've got all this, why is it not? It doesn't feel like it's informing a future strategy for me. For example, we're now at a relatively high vaccination rate. I think is, is it seventy? Is, is nearly three quarters of the population yeah, yeah. from sixteen and o- or eighteen and over at least so. is is now has now has two jabs. So we're now actually rolling out a booster program. Well, what do you need alongside a booster program to make sure that the people that really need those boosters are, are getting them? Well, that's an antibody testing regime. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I took part in a pilot study, so there are, there's there's testing there. They know they can actually raise the capacity. I think actually one aspect of this report, which was very, very interesting, was about the uh, almost the the capacity was turned down at universities, which I found was really striking given how Matt Hancock made this great song and dance about building up a diagnostics industry. Well, you did if you ignored the one that was already there. So um, it's, I feel like I have gone off on a little bit of a tangent here, I I must admit, (laughs) but it's, it's so frustrating that I think we're actually still at a phase where this, you could probably write, the same report or many aspects of this report about the period that's going to happen now, another six months down the line. Yeah. And what was actually baffling to me was when government ministers were going on TV programs, they knew they were going to ask about it and they said they never read it. Well, at least read the summary. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then you can't really say that no one knows, no one knew this was going to happen when there was scientists on question time telling the precise minister this was going to happen at the time. So, well, if you look at the timeline, you know, we, we, we knew from the end of 2019 what was happening. There was warnings in, in January 2020 about what was about to happen. And, and then when it hit the Lombardia region of Italy in February, yeah. but people just said that we shouldn't listen to Italy for some reason. <laughs> I mean, why? It's, it's, a bit disrespectful to Italy. Yeah, I mean... It's, it was British exception, uh, British, uh, I can't really say that phrase, can I? British exceptionalism at its best. There we go. Third time lucky. Yeah. Uh, little island mentality, I suppose, but here, oh, here we are. Um, I mean, I mean, some, some of the recommendations I'm not even sure about from the report. The armed forces should have more central and standing role in preparing for and responding to emergencies like pandemics. I mean, I'd rather not get to the point where we need the armed forces to, to bail us out, right? Because that leads to the... Imp- well, it certainly gives the impression there is something fundamentally wronged in the resourcing of the health service yeah, and the care service. Yeah, um, there, there was a... Um, I mean, the, is, yeah, the government should ensure comprehensive plans are made for future risks, blah, blah, blah. That's quite, quite an obvious one, really. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm quite glad that's in there because that, be, that should be very obvious. That, that should have flashing lights around yeah, it. Yeah. Um, um, the government and the NHS should consider establishing a volunteer reserve database so that volunteers who have had appropriate checks can be rapidly called up and deployed in, a, in an emergency. Now, Do you again, remember the again, volunteer army? Yeah. But what happened to that? It, yeah. Well, maybe it's went into a recommendation in, in this report. But again, we shouldn't be... We should have a capacity not to depend on volunteers. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we should, it's, it's we baffling. Should, yeah, we, we shouldn't be like, oh, can everyone just chip in a little bit and clap on your doorstep and then actually can you do our job for us? <laughs> clap on your doorstep so we don't have to give these people a pay rise. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the UK should aim to be a world leader in coordinate, coordinating international resilience planning. Uh, yeah, yeah, we should be. 
we've got a good life sciences industry, we should have more of a handle on events like this. That seems to be one aspect of this that's actually come out well is the life sciences industry. No surprise, it's brilliant. Well, we've, we've <laughs> had to fall back on them. Yeah, exactly. Well, we probably wouldn't be here otherwise. That, very true. Um, an analysis should be carried out to assess the safety of running the NHS with the limited latent capacity that it currently has. Okay, can we can we not analyse this? Can we fix it, maybe? Well, let's raise the capacity of the NHS by funding it properly. Yeah. And not saying that um, for exa- you're building new hospitals when in reality you just built another wall next to a hospital. Yeah, exactly um, that. Yeah. It's just, it, it sounds like it's stretching... It's already limited resources to breaking point. It feels a bit like there's, a, there's an element of gaslighting going on with the recommendations. Yeah, like we are fine, but we, we, uh, we if we just do this, we'll be all right. You know, you know these things that we we said you couldn't have because it'll cost money. Well, we need them now, so we better have them. <laughs> yeah. uh. it's just yeah, it's it's just worrying that these are. I mean, we haven't been through the full report, so I, I guess you know, just go into a bit more detail, um, hopefully. I'd hope so. Yeah. yeah. If these are recommendations and lessons learned, um, they could do a bit better than these 10 bullet points. Yeah, I would sincerely hope so. Uh, we will provide you the link on um, on our podcast bio um, whenever we push this out. Um, we're actually going to come to COVID news today. Yes, we know we touched on it, upon it already. I actually want to touch on the piece from the eye first, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. where it's... It follows on nicely from the lessons learned report because then we can actually ask, are they actually learning the lessons? As the I reported earlier on this week that the government's sage scientists are meeting just once a month. And yesterday's case rate was just over 49,000? Yep, 49,000. And we are seeing a death toll of around 1,000 people a week, but that's mercifully low according to the health secretary. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Not for the people involved. I think that's the most crass line I think I've ever heard from, well, not ever heard. And that says a lot if it's not the one I've ever heard. It's, it's just, it's, it's baffling all the same. He hasn't been putting himself in a good light, um, Sergio David. I think we actually had this conversation of he's been largely invisible until that press briefing. He's he's just sounded like a, um, like a government press release lackey. He just gives you. He just says what they want him to, and then I, I don't know. At least when I, I think back to people like Jeremy Hunt and Matt Hancock, who you can criticise fairly, of course, but he has no like Sajid has no presence. And the, the only presence I've seen him have is when he calls a press conference to say that he's just been appointed health secretary, and then walks away from them because <laughs> he needs to say, "Sorry, I've got to get on with the job." Yeah. Like, why bring the cameras there in the first place, Sajid? Yeah, we'll just get on with the job. Yeah, um, which it doesn't sound like he's been doing. Ooh, <laughs> just, that's a hell of a claim to make. But, Sajid, you're welcome to come on and clear that up if you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do your job. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it, it's just a little bit tiring after 18 months of COVID-19. That We're going that, through this again. Yeah, we, we've got a new health secretary. He's telling people that the death rate isn't high enough to worry about. But compared, like, I've got some notes here compared to last year. The same time last year, um, there was a seven-day average of new cases of twenty thousand, and that, that that rose from seven thousand from the start of the month. That was with without a vaccine. That was without up. a vaccine. Now with a vaccine, um, daily COVID cases have been above forty thousand for eight days in a row. In a row, sorry. Um, so let's look back to last year actually, because at the time, 
we October last year, that means that tiered measures were coming in, I believe. It yeah. was around about the August time, there was the element of freedoms, there was a rule of six, but you could meet indoors and outdoors. You could still go to the pub, for example. Yeah, yeah that's right. And then it was a case of tier one, two, and three. Am I, am I thinking that? It got to tier four around about Christmas, and then... And then it was full lockdown, and then they just basically said, "All oh, bets." I'm taking you on a wonderful timeline there of my memory, because everything's just blurring into one, quite frankly. But it, it, it's just frustrating that we're here, well, nearly two years after the first time. <laughs> it's deja vu again, really, isn't it? Um, deja vu all over again. I mean, for the um, was there anything else in that eye report you wanted to discuss? I, I just want to know why it's only once a month. Why? Yeah. <laughs> you, I don't know. I can't tell you. I mean, there's Sage had convened once a week since the pandemic started in spring 2020, but in June this was dropped to fortnightly, and since July has been monthly with no meeting at all in August. Which words fail me? Maybe you just forgot about it. <laughs> oh yes, thank God I've had my jab. I'm fine. Yeah. It feels like they just left the pitch. Yeah, definitely. I um, if I mean, it should be up to. To Johnson, everybody to to be to be convening those meetings really. I, I I guess moving on from that, there's been a lot of talk about whether we move on to this Plan B, as everyone's calling it. But Plan B sounds a lot like pre Freedom Day plan, which is masks, masks, social distancing, um, recommendations to work from home. Yeah, which I don't think is. Um, a stupid idea. <laughs> it's quite a good idea, actually. Hint, hint. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, Javid has been. It, it, he said that you know some of the restrictions might have to take place if not enough people, for instance, get the booster jab. So he's aware that cases are rising. Perhaps immunity levels are dropping because it's been like you were mentioning earlier, Ian. Um, antibody levels. Antibody levels have been. Would, would have been dropping because uh, of the length it's taken between between jabs. Well, put it this way: When did you have your second jab? Uh, I think it was was it June this year, maybe or something. Was that my I, first? I know I had my second around about the time of the European Championships, which is the. Yes. If you actually have a look at the graph, you just see a spike in cases, and then it comes back down. Everyone, match. <laughs> everyone went to the pub, basically. So it was around about then I had my second. So that'll be June, July time. Yeah, I think that was a little bit after you, so... Yeah. Maybe end of July. But I'd love to know my antibody levels now. Yeah, it'd be very interesting. Especially if we're going into the winter period and they're expecting it to sp- spread more aggressively mm-hmm. because there is a new Delta variant, apparently. The health secretary, Nyan confirmed it, as he struggled to read out all the decimal points and, and numbers to it. Right, so we have another Delta variant. And if they think this is seasonal, i.e. it's more aggressive in the winter, I'd like to know if my antibody levels are going to be on the wane come December time. Yeah, and if you come down with something like flu, then your immunity is already already going to be scarpered up, isn't it? It just allows everybody to plan better, if nothing else. Yeah, definitely. If we get on top of this now, then we might be okay in the winter. But this is the thing. Throughout, we've not not seen that level of proactivity. No, sure. And and we've ended up in trouble time and time again. Yeah. I mean... the, the 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 kids going back to school, for example, unvaccinated. The teachers not being vaccinated during that half term was 
I thought was a baffling policy just just for the sake of playing politics. Yeah. Just let teachers get ill because they don't particularly vote for us. Come on. Um, it's... You know, it, I'm going to go off on a tangent, so I think I'll just stop there. He's... Yeah, but like I was, like I was saying, Sajid Javid does understand that first of all, the NHS is under pressure, but not that much though, but, because he said it wasn't a, the what was it? What was the exact he says, turn of phrase? At this point, we don't believe they're unsustainable, and then he says, if we feel at any point it's becoming unsustainable, we won't hesitate to act. But surely we shouldn't have to get to that level. That's, that's, that's just mismanagement. Yeah. If, if you have to get to the level where something's on fire, then you've, <laughs> you haven't done your job properly. Yes, you know that little flame that's just burning over there and it's right next to that petrol? You better put that out quick before it catches fire. You yeah. don't wait until it does actually catch fire. Yeah. Yeah. And he told a Downing Street press conference as well, you know, if not enough people get their booster jabs, um, if they don't come forward, if people don't wear masks. That's, that, that is a great irony, by the way. I, I, I know. Um if they're not washing their hands and stuff, it's going to hit us all. Um, if you're not mandating this stuff, people are just going to go, nah. Well, people become complacent with it all. I don't know about you, but I've seen a massive drop off in people wearing um, masks in the, in the shops and stuff. So have I. I'm, I'm actually trying to move my shopping routine around to the point where, oh, okay, I know pe- people with masks are actually going around <laughs> about that side. I, I haven't got <laughs> that um, uh, Well, when you've got close relatives who are immunosuppressed and they've got underlying health conditions, then yeah, no. it's, it's the kind of thing you, you tend to look out for. No, yeah, uh, totally makes sense. Um, it's just a shame that... I, I don't know, is it a UK thing? Is it a, an England I thing? I think it's an England thing, I'm sure. Aren't masks still mandatory in Wales? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're not mandatory in England. They're mandatory in Scotland. <laughs> it feels as though they're, they're just... This is, again, appealing to a very loud and small part of the electorate. Yeah. I don't want to say what age group they're in, but um, there seems to be a lot of... Well, it's like you were saying about Sergeant Javid. He was opposed to wearing a mask on the train because it would impose upon his uh, democratic freedoms and all that, right? It was something about that he, w- he wouldn't wear a, a mask on, a, on an empty carriage. Yeah. Even if he was, even if he was asked to by the the one person that was there, or something like that. Right. I, I think I think there is a report out there. We'll Google it for you and we'll put it in the bio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's just it's very selfish, you know. I, um, I, I think. Um, just on the state of where we are in England, um, I wanted to just reference a comment from uh, Professor Saad Shakir, who is the director of the Drug Safety Research Unit in Birmingham. Friend uh, of the podcast. At the end of the podcast, he's been on. Um, go listen to the episode because uh, what's really interesting is he, he just talks about um, a bit about the approval process and um, post safety studies for COVID nineteen vaccines. But but we digress from that little yeah, talk, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he's essentially essentially said the government need to get a handle on this now. Um, he says the cases, hospital admissions, and deaths um, are far too high for this stage of a, of a pandemic. Uh, compared to countries like France, winter is obviously going to bring a rise in uh, COVID cases and flu. And whilst the government's reliance on COVID vaccines is correct, it's, uh, it's simply not enough. Immunity of the first two jabs is declining and young people are not getting vaccinated in large enough numbers. And then the vaccination of the third jab and the booster is too slow. So we need to step up the vaccination programme, but then we need other measures as well, not necessarily lockdowns, but actions like closed uh, spaces of a large number of people. Um, 
you know, better public transport measures with masks on there. And ironically, like we, like you were talking about earlier, he says there's no conflict between health and the economy. Prioritize health and the economy will prosper. Um, makes sense if people are healthy enough to shop. Yeah, exactly. It was the re- the reason there was ill health. No, sorry, the reason the economy contracted was because there was ill health. This isn't a hard thing to get your head around. Well, <laughs> it does seem a lot of it's been driven by the economy. I mean, I don't want to spend our entire time basically laying into how the government's done, even though I've you know, performed throughout this uh, this entire crisis, but we may as well move on to something else. Um, <laughs> yeah. a, Would you like a happier story? Oh, I'm always, always game for a happier story. Yeah. Which countries are failing to, do, to, to, to deliver COVID-19 vaccines? Okay, I'm waiting for the happy story. That's, yeah, that's, I don't think there is one this, this podcast. That's just awful. In all honesty, yes. that might actually be worse than the previous bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think we've spoken about this before, but do you remember, do you remember Kovacs? Yes, I remember Kovacs. Yeah, yeah. So, um, countries like the UK promised to deliver hundreds of millions of doses to Kovacs and other uh, load mill income countries. Kovacs, of course, is the, uh, the scheme developed. It's a charitable scheme developed for the equitable sharing of vaccines. To uh, poor nations, Gordon Brown's been very vocal on this. The former PM, it, it's a real passion of his. Yeah, well. yeah, but then yeah. again, I think he, he's very much a logistics thinker. If you mm-hmm. actually hear a lot of what he says, he, he's he's basically a case of va- vaccinate the rest of the world and we'll be safe too. Yeah, we'll be all, all right. Yeah, he, he looks at it from a very global perspective. I think rather than nation by nation, which I I, I think is the right thing to do. Yep. Um, There's a reason they call it pandemic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I won't go into this too much because it is pretty depressing. Um, but <laughs> so um, I've reported on the story today: the UK and other rich nations have only delivered 261 million COVID-19 vaccine doses, which sounds quite a lot. But this is out of promised 1.8 billion doses. Um, so that's a percent. What, what you've got a percentage there? Um, I think I did. So the UK is only. To, uh, donated 9.6 of their percent. That's that's pretty I appalling. I think it's about 16% or something like that. Oh, but, my. I mean, I, I do want to caveat this this story with a little bit. Um, I think there's still time for these countries to deliver these doses. For instance, the UK only only announced in June, I think, yeah. that they would deliver 100 million doses. But... Um, it's fairly clear that more work needs to be done and done quickly. Oh yeah, a lot more work. I mean, it, and it's not just the UK. But Germany has only delivered twelve percent. Um, France has delivered just nine. The UK even had the audacity to accept over half a million doses of the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine from Covax this year. I don't know why. What? Yeah. I didn't even see this before the podcast, so yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. genuinely shocked by this. Um, and like this is despite. The UK already having ordered enough COVID vaccines to uh, vaccinate over like five times the amount of people in the country. So the fact that we've just managed to take away half a million vaccines, which could have went to poor nations or developed nations or you know whatever, uh, it's just ridiculous. I don't know what we've, we've just got this hoarding mentality at the moment. And the, the problem is, fair enough, if we need to do booster booster schemes, right? I can get behind just needing all the all the vaccines. I can get behind a little bit of a capitalism behind it, the fact that yeah, rich countries are going to be first in line because... They have more money. They have more money. Mm. And th- unfortunately, charitable schemes like this are always going to be dependent upon. Well, yeah, I think what we're getting 
what we understand here is the way the world works. There's no need for it to be unnecessarily cruel <laughs> yeah, on yeah. top of it. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> if we've got a surplus, did I, say, I, did, I said 539, I said half a million, didn't I? Not 539 million. <laughs> I was just confused. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, but if we've got a surplus, how many of them are going to go to waste? They've only got a certain shelf life, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think, like you were saying, Gordon Vaughan has said it would be like one of the largest disasters ever if, if we just let these vaccines go to waste without them going to nations who need them. Um, so yeah, happy story, right? Happy, more, happy more work, story. Um, to globally, you know, more just more more workers needed to coordinate stuff like this better. Um, even Covax itself was criticised a little bit because this report was by the People's Vaccine, right? Um, and basically, Covax was criticised for um, depending upon the charitable donations of of countries and um, mm. pharmaceutical companies as well, instead of pushing, say, um, trying to to waive IP rights so technology can be developed by other countries so they can you know see um how COVID-19 vaccines are made and then transfer that technology to a production plant in in India for instance or in South Africa where they could develop their own vaccines and get them out sooner which would be a good measure but then that IP and patents is a totally different kettle of fish um and pharmaceutical companies are going to be loath to give them up that's it's their it's it's their it's their right it's their money how they develop profit. Uh, yeah. You just made me very, very depressed with yeah. the story. Yeah, I, I thought I thought it was on a bit of a downer coming in, yeah. but now, <laughs> now I'm on the floor. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get away from that, but I thought, because it's, it's a story that's just... It's important. Yeah, it's just come out today. Um, so, I, yeah, I figured worth a mention. Okay. Well, I've got a couple of probably a bit more upbeat pieces that I've yeah. covered on MedSec Innovation because... You know, we might be nearly two years into a pandemic, but the innovation never stops. Um, And it's always, even though we're not necessarily, you know, saying these products should be rolled out or anything like that, it's just good to know what's out there. Um, For example, there was a new COVID-19 test, or that was the researchers at the University of of Warwick, University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire, NHS Trust, and... I can't, can never pronounce the name, so I, I apologise in advance if I get Icheni di- Diagnostics' name wrong. Is it Icheni? Icheni? I don't really know. Is, I, it, is it a chet or... I see... I see me? I, I see me, <laughs> might, oh, might no, be. I don't think so. But I apologise for getting your name wrong, if you are listening. But uh, they have demonstrated the, the technology to detect COVID-19 using sugars rather than antibodies. So how, how does that work? Well, it is a lateral flow diagnostic. Uh, so these lateral flows work by using antibodies which stick to the virus. Right. So uh, the research team uh, have been working with, I'm going to say Icheni Diagnostics for now. Um, they will obviously correct me if I'm yeah. wrong here. Feel free to. Just, just, <laughs> just basically to develop an alternative system of detection using glycans, also known as sugars, yeah. where synthetic polymer chains are used to attach the sugars to the surface of nanoparticles because viruses commonly use glycine as a handle to attach to our cells. So they've mimicked this process to enable the detection of SARS-CoV-2. Right. I mean, what I want to know now is how that compares to traditional LFTs and why you would use that over traditional LFTs. Well, I think that will naturally come next if this has more and more 
Yeah, they develop it further. More and more testing. Let's see its uh, let's see its sensitivity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there, there have been plenty of reports in the past past few weeks that a lot of lateral flow tests are more reliable than they thought they'd be. Yeah, I've seen that, which, um, which is a nice surprise really, because I always thought LFTs were a bit of a, um, a hit and miss. I think, the garden I, called it. Yeah, but I, there is a, an episode that focused on uh, lateral flow diagnostics that is coming up in the coming weeks. I promise you. Yeah. Where <laughs> just to give you a sneak peek into it, uh, the uh, the guest on there said it is basically like much capitalism. If you pay what you get, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, another innovation I'd like to draw yourself to. Well, not necessarily an, an innovation, but a combination of products that are already out there being rolled together into one offering. In that, um, uh, what they claim to be a UK first smartphone app launched to aid coronavirus testing. This is Guys and St Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust. They've worked with TestCard and SureScreen to uh, co-create a new app that enables COVID-19 antigen testing and recording of results for patients. I think this is supposed to be in the hospital setting. Mm. Just so it's... Yeah, I think it's really... uh, I think skeptics would say it was vaccine passporting by the back door. Okay, how does it work? Because surely you still need a a, a natural test rather than just... It's not just the app that is a diagnostic, right? No, no, exactly. I mean... If you actually look on to look on the story here, we've got a lateral flow test, and we've got ah yes, and we've got a, a camera phone. And it's simple. I think if you actually register your test results with NHS England, you can scan, scan the QR code. So I think they've just done that internally mm-hmm. rather than a national database. I mean, I might be wrong. Feel free to actually correct the record on that, but I believe that is the case. I mean, it certainly looks like the case. Because the app simply gives a positive, negative, or invalid result, having checked all steps are undertaken correctly using a valid and in-date lateral flow cassette. Right, so you've just got access to your, to your results through, through the app straight away. Great, basically. That's a good idea. And Instead of having to... It saves people time having to log in and register themselves on the... Um... And we know time is of the essence when it comes to you know, transmission. Yeah, exactly. And <sighs> also, you know, sometimes it's just about the more that's out there is the better. So people have choice of what they want to use. I think, you know, it's welcome. It is welcome. If it saves lives, it's welcome. Yeah, definitely. Um, should we try and drift away from COVID a little bit? Yeah, I think... Do you want to, do you want to finish with this um, with the digital GP appointments? Well, do you want to talk about what's in your editor's letter in the latest issue of EPM magazine? Because it's not Strictly Pharma. You've actually covered this. It, it isn't Strictly Pharma, but um, if you don't know, the... Um, Sajid Javid again. End of the ministers. He's having, getting a great debut here, he isn't is he? A great debut. <laughs> um, basically, what they want to do is it, they, they want to try and increase face-to-face appointments for GP practices because that's it. Because just because <laughs> this is yeah, just because um, there's been a bit of an outcry by GPs and healthcare staff and the British Medical Association. Um, for instance, and the um, Royal College of General Practitioners. They don't like this because basically during the uh, during lockdowns and in, in COVID-19 in particular, we've seen more patients drift to telephone appointments, to digital appointments, which is fine, I think. Which is perfectly understandable. It's as if there's a deadly disease out there. Exactly. Um, so I think, I think it dropped down to at one point last year, just under sixty percent, maybe about fifty-eight, fifty-seven percent mm-hmm. of the amount of people who are actually going um, face-to-face appointments. Still, quite high number. Um, 
So EMI evidence desk, it just it asks, asks the question of why, why are we ignoring the fact that digital technologies exist and they should be there to help alleviate pressures for GPs. Um, it also, um, the 250 million pound funding, which is on offer for GPs, is only for locums. So it's only a temporary fix for it's GPs. chicken plaster. It, it is, it, that's what Jeremy Hunt and well, myself have called it in, the, in this uh, editor's desk. It, it is a temporary... For close followers, you know, that is actually quite something. Reese and Jeremy Hunt are on the same page about something. Well, <laughs> it's, do we miss Jeremy Hunt? <laughs> We were asking before off uh, off Mike if we missed Matt Hancock. Right. <laughs> so I mean, if you if you can have Matt Matt Hancock, should we have Jeremy Hunt? Oh dear. I mean, if it's we've got to go on, but yeah, I don't think. Yeah, it is essentially a stick and plaster. It's not going to solve long term staffing crisis that's faced primary care for a long time now. Um, and I, I I just argue that they'd be best off. Um, sticking to their um, agenda of, of hitting 6,000 GPs by 2025. Which should be a long-term project anyway. It should be a long-term project just to have more capacity in uh, in nursing, in, in GPs, doctors in the hospitals, just for the sake of we've got an older population, the population is growing, we need a health system with more capacity to deal with it. Yeah. And it takes a long time to train as a nurse and a doctor. It takes, so, it takes a long so time. I, I can't believe that they can just think, well, let's just throw a little bit of money at this and then all this capacity will come back. Yeah, it's not, I mean... And it should actually inform a wider strategic approach. If you've got all this technology and you think it's reliable, because, let's face it, technology can break. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. shouldn't be the, the be-all and end-all. It should not be the be-all and end-all. And that's where I have some sympathy in the face-to-face appointment thing because there are obviously certain cases where you feel more comfortable of, you know, yeah, yeah. You know for example... You won't want to um, a video consul- consultation about certain sensitive areas now, would you? No, that could uh, be misconstrued quite, quite easily. <laughs> exactly, exactly that. But you get my point. There are there are certain areas that you really, really want to have that face to face consultation. Yeah, yeah. But there should be the expanding the capacity of the NHS in terms of its clinical manpower, mm-hmm. alongside a preventative strategy for when it comes to let's not let people's conditions get worse let's let's find ways to you know to monitor things let's find ways to nip things in the book i think that's the way that technology med tech firms in particular want to go that way mm-hmm. i think they're prepared to go that way and it just now needs governance to you know, government to lead on that yeah it definitely needs to be you know a good a good mix of face-to-face in in, in, in tech uh, solutions I think if you actually listen to plenty of our guests on the, on this podcast, you will actually hear they sing from a similar hymn sheet there. Mm-hmm. Well, because a lot of minor conditions can probably be solved over a few minutes over the phone, right? Sounds like this, get more rest, whatever. You know, just just those 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 appointments which don't need to take 15 minutes or, or something like that. But also, it can help alleviate the pressures for GPs by offering better face-to-face services if they can uh, unload some of, that, some of that work. Yeah, and it's... Not just in terms of medtech that they can use, but you know, you know, different technologies to help them. I mean, voice recognition technology for when it comes to admin helping. Well, I think I've come I've come across a couple of organisations that have tried have tried this to you know, relieve relieve their own workload. Yeah, so they can, the paperwork is you know immense for for doctors um, in those those in healthcare. So 
anything that can reduce that pressure is, is going to be great. But I think the one thing that strikes me about um, the health secretary's comments regarding this is just the tone of it. I don't think was right at all. It sounds as if he is criticising the care that's been given throughout the pandemic, at least on my end, I might be leading into it too much. But it sounds as if it's a bit of a criticism. That but scapegoaty? A little bit, you know, saying... It's almost like old-fashioned to say we want people back in back in GP practices, like for good old days. Well, they would just want people back to the office for... Yeah, yeah, it's just because this is how we've always done it. Um, so I you know, I argue in this edit there saying the adaptive nature of the GPs who are COVID-19, you know, it should be applauded rather than vilified. Yeah, um, I don't really have much more to add to that, in all honesty, but it's, it's just simply a case of... I think this almost comes full circle. It's not just about the pandemic itself. You need to learn the lessons of throughout throughout the pandemic, if you follow me. There's mm-hmm. other, other things, the knock-on effects. We can learn lessons from that, whether it's new ways of living, new ways of managing our health. Yeah. Just, you know. If, if we've seen improvements via remote technologies or... If there's elements of progress. Yeah, why not take them, adapt them, and then... And make them fit for purpose. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Um, So, sorry, Sergeant David. We know know we're there. (laughs) We laid into him quite a bit, though. A little bit, but it's um, it's not undeserving. And I think if you are the health secretary, you're always going to be in the line of fire. Um, I don't Mm. think there's ever going to be a health secretary who isn't criticised in in some format. That's true, actually. And uh, if you ever want to come on the podcast, Sergeant, we'll be more than happy to have you. Yes, we know you're listening. Definitely. Yeah. What health secretary doesn't li- listen to the mental podcast? That's how they end up all going. Once we criticise them, we're yeah. gone. Sadie, yeah. <laughs> two, two weeks time, Sadie probably resigned. Yeah. Can't take the criticism yeah. from us too. All right. Um, I think I was just about to have some It does. A, bit a long one. A bit of a long one, but I think we've covered a lot of ground. That is the mental podcast. We might be back for another in-person one sometime soon. Depends if the numbers improve. Yeah. See you next time. Yeah.